1: Track four games at once with multi-view mode, and catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.
2: But right now, uh, the big problem I think people have is they don't know how long uh, this travel order is going to take effect, so it's very hard to do advanced planning. Should I book a trip in Thanksgiving? Will it still be in place then? Should I... Uh, rethink my vacation, all that's uh, putting people in a real tough spot. In the city uh, uh, certainly going to have to uh, uh, keep the public informed as they take states on and off this list.
3: That's the voice of Joe Schwederman, professor of public services and director of the Chattuck Institute at DePaul University, talking about Chicago's new self-quarantine order for travelers coming from states with high rates of COVID infections. This is WBDM's In-Depth, where we take a deep dive into a story we're telling on the air, I'm Jennifer Kuiper. This week, we continue our ongoing discussion on COVID-19 as some areas of the country have had to roll back openings to try to contain the recent surge. And that recent surge has prompted Chicago to implement a new travel order that requires quarantine for people coming to Chicago from 15 COVID hotspot states. We'll also take a look at the local restaurant industry and see how it is doing as places continue to open up. Also on the entertainment front, with coronavirus lockdowns closing movie theaters across the U.S., drive-ins have seen a resurgence in popularity, and one major retailer has taken note. But first, let's get the latest on the COVID crisis, its recent surge, and an update on efforts to develop a vaccine. We welcome Michelle Cortez, health reporter, Bloomberg News in Minneapolis. Michelle, talk to us a little bit about the surge. We know we've heard that it's going on in Florida and Texas. What are some of the other states?
4: All across the American South, we're seeing increasing rates. So we're seeing them in Florida, Louisiana, Texas, Arizona, California. But more significantly, we're seeing some increases in states that thought that they were done with this. In New Jersey, for example, we're seeing increasing rates. And in other places, we're not seeing the declines that we had hoped for, including in Illinois and Minnesota. So the concern is consistent across the country, but the biggest numbers are hitting in the South.
3: How about internationally? Are we seeing spikes elsewhere? We are seeing spikes elsewhere. India is being particularly hard hit.
4: Brazil, where the president was just diagnosed with coronavirus, is also seeing accelerating rates. And in other areas, again, where we thought that things were under good control, we're seeing increasing rates as well.
3: And Brazil's president really downplayed coronavirus. Uh, He had a couple of comments or a few comments before he was diagnosed. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, his response to this.
4: Yeah, he he said, basically believing that the coronavirus was a hoax and not anything real, he personally is not concerned about his own situation, saying that he's a previous athlete and so his good physical fitness will help him fight off coronavirus. And of course, we've seen repeated stories of people who are in excellent health, who have had terrible results with coronavirus, people who have died, uh, Ironman athletes, people who are... Sports professionals, people who are Broadway actors have had serious illnesses and died from this. So honestly, just being in good physical shape is not a protection. He is also taking hydrochloroquine and azithromycin, two of the medicines that have also been promoted by President Trump. But studies have not shown that they're particularly helpful. So we will see how he does
3: with this. What is is the World Health Organization doing about the evidence of airborne transmission, which we've heard about recently?
4: The WHO has said that they are taking it seriously and they're doing another full court press to find out how much of a danger coronavirus is in terms of going airborne. The WHO has said to this point that it's only airborne in people who have been getting medical procedures. It's important to understand what we mean by airborne, and it's really basically a matter of size. Everybody knows that the risk is coming from people's mouth when you cough, obviously, even when you speak. And in some cases, there are reports that even just breathing, if you're infected, you can be spewing out viral particles. The thing is, what happens to those particles once they leave your mouth? If they're small enough, they can essentially hang around in the air. And then if somebody else is walking by, they can come into contact with those particles, even if you're not in that location any longer, they can basically hang up there for a while. And so if that is in fact the case, then we're going to need to be wearing masks even when we're not within six feet of someone and for much longer periods of time. The current belief has been that they're droplets, that they're bigger and heavier. And as soon as someone coughs, those droplets fall to the floor. So the risk to the individual is lower. But there is uncertainty, and the WHO is now saying that they're going to look into it after 230 scientists sent them a letter saying, hey, this is a real concern.
3: And as far as the uh, vaccines go, we had news recently on a a smaller business that has received a lot of money, $1.6 billion dollars, It has gone to Novavax for a coronavirus vaccine, a company that hasn't brought a vaccine to market. Tell us a little bit about what they're working on. Yes, Novavax has not
4: yet brought a vaccine to market, but the way that they're going about doing it is a very traditional method. Normally, when we think about a vaccine, if you take a small piece of a virus and you inject that, you somehow disable it, you you take only a part of it that's not infectious, or you kill the virus itself, and then you use the, the remnants that can't actually cause infection but are intact enough so that the immune system gets an early warning system, essentially, for the virus. And so Novavax is going with that. It's injecting a small particles, and then the immune system will see it, will build an immune response to fight anything like that that it sees in the future. And then if you are exposed to a coronavirus in the future after having gotten a Novavax vaccine, your body will be prepared for it. That's the goal. Sanofi is also working with that model, and it's a very traditional model. That is how vaccines predominantly work in, in the world. The other vaccines that are in development, they're much more novel. They're helping the body Produce those proteins itself, as opposed to injecting the proteins into the body and using other ways of, of of taking a different virus and bringing in viral particles. So they're much more innovative, also unproven technology. And we'll see what this money, this 1.6 billion dollars, is for. Is in part to help the company make the vaccine, so that if it's successful, we will have the doses that we need when people are clamoring for them.
3: And again, primarily to the south and southwest is where we're seeing these hotspots correct? Yes, the hot
4: spots in the U.S. are definitely in the South and in the Southwest. We're seeing numbers of cases in Texas. In some places, they're saying that the ICUs are full Don't come to the hospital unless you're absolutely desperate. And even if you come to the hospital, we might not have space for you. In a lot of situations, the problem is that they don't have enough workers. They do have beds and space, but it's been difficult for some places to make sure that they have enough people to tend for the coronavirus patients. In other places, in California and in Florida, there are new requirements. Different counties are putting out mask requirements. There had been efforts to start opening up the economies and a lot of local mayors are dialing that back in saying it's too dangerous and we are afraid that this virus is going to get out of control again here in the summer months which was the time that we were all expecting it to really
3: decline. Michelle Cortez, health reporter, Bloomberg News in Minneapolis. Those are the headlines and a look at the country's hotspots. That recent surge in cases nationwide has prompted Chicago to put in place a new travel order requiring anyone entering or returning to the city from more than a dozen states to quarantine for two weeks. Joining us is Joe Schwederman, professor of public services and director of the Chattuck Institute at DePaul University. Joe, I mean, how do you even begin to enforce this? It sounds like it really is just a voluntary thing.
2: Oh, this is you're really uh, the city uh, mayor Lightfoot's appealing to this sort of ethical uh, sense of pe- people, and I think what's notable about this is it took effect so quickly. So a lot of people had flights already booked and so forth, and they're a little bit confused. They're getting mixed signals that you know Americans is filling flights up full, and then when they get back, they have to quarantine. So it really. Uh, puts people in a tough spot to, to decide how to handle this.
3: Do you think that employers could possibly start asking people about vacations where they're going to make sure they're not going to hot spots or something like that?
2: I think that's exactly the direction we're going to go. Now, the city said they may send out teams or are going to send out teams to enforce. That's a little bit uh, uncharted waters. We haven't seen uh, you know that sort of uh, compliance effort happen before. I think, though, people feel, you know, if I'm... Uh, uh, if the word spreads that I've been out somewhere, I get COVID, uh, uh, certainly there are uh, times where you have to uh, uh, work with employers who may be held liable if they uh, don't do some common sense measures to make sure people comply. So we'll see how this plays out. But you're exactly right that employers are going to have to start monitoring their employees uh a bit more than they have in the past, and that's, uh, that's a tough call.
3: How do we know where the hot spots are? I mean, we know Florida, we know Texas, we, because they've been in the news a lot, but any advice you have for those who are planning trips to find out if they might be potentially going into one of those? Yeah,
2: I think you really look at the uh, number of cases they have, you know, per thousand population. There's clear metrics, and we're seeing that those uh, uh, dozen or so states that are on the list really have seen outbreaks. and, And, you know, the quarantine isn't as onerous as a lot of people think. If you work from home, a lot of times there's ways to sort of manage that. Uh, but right now uh, there's uh, the big problem I think people have is they don 't know how long uh, this travel order is going to take effect, so it 's very hard to do advanced planning. You know Should I book a trip in Thanksgiving? Will it still be in place then? Should I uh, rethink my vacation all that 's uh, putting people in a real tough spot, and the city uh, uh, certainly going to have to uh, uh, keep the public informed as they take states on and off this list.
3: Joe, right now on uh, airplanes, we've been talking a lot about that middle seat going away on some uh, airlines. Are people wearing masks through the entire flight? Is it being enforced by the attendants? Do you know anything about that?
2: Well, we are seeing good compliance on the airplanes. Uh, we've seen uh, a real good response of the airlines to, you know, to sanitize the equipment. and There is sort of a good. Uh, uh... behavioral pattern we're seeing at the airports where people are social distancing you know but the fact is if uh, there's more and more reports of flights going out full and just the density of people on flights you know gives people pause and i think we're in a kind of a trial period here to see uh if uh, the the uh, voluntary uh, uh when airlines notify you their flight's going to be full you can voluntarily move to another flight we're not sure how well that process works but, boy, it's going to be tested in August.
3: And what is the, the, on the travel front, what is the state of the industry right now as far as we had the slow reopenings in in some many cases, and then some of the states that opened early were seeing the uh, the cases rising again. Well, How has that played out?
2: Oh, that's certainly uh, this summer, uh, late summer, uh, V-shaped recovery, we hope to see, probably isn't going to happen, uh, mostly because a lot of the states that are... Uh, seeing rising uh, travel are really strong destinations, you know, Florida, Arizona, and so forth. Uh, But right now, American United are really going to ramp up their flight schedules, even with this latest outbreak, particularly American, which is going to go basically to a full schedule. And that's uh, 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 maybe optimistic, given how we're seeing this second wave and seeing some pullbacks again. Uh, But right now, the airlines are bullish, but uh, there may be a little over-optimism in the
3: air. Hopefully, that optimism is warranted. Only time will tell. Now let's turn our attention to Illinois' restaurant industry and see how eateries are faring in their new norm. We welcome Doug Roth, founder and president of Playground Hospitality here in Chicago. Doug, a much different scene than it was earlier this year. We have had the outdoor dining that has been going on for a little while now, but we've more recently opened up to allow some indoor dining, but have to note it's at capacity. So what are you finding in the restaurant industry as far as how restaurant owners are doing? I think some might not have even chosen to open.
5: Correct, Jennifer, thank you. I would have to say that it's a mixed bag right now. And what I mean by that is there are a couple things that are transpiring. You you reference outdoor, and outdoor seems to be very successful right now uh, because our weather right now is cooperating. The aspect of the inside or indoor dining is questionable. And I think what's happened with that is that one, that most people, uh, obviously feeling that this is our summertime and uh, it's camp like environment in Chicago, is where I want to be. I want to be outdoors. And it's difficult to get people to sit inside. I think there's also something that's underlined that as well. As information continues to evolve about the virus, that people are a little bit more concerned about sitting inside. And what type of filtration system for their air conditioning do they have? And is it something that is helping to remove all the different types of particles and bacteria and viruses and things of that sort? And is there a sense that I'm going to be healthy? And that's even with, uh, obviously, seating that is going to be somewhat distanced from other tables. And probably the last part of it is that what kind of vibe when you walk into some of these restaurants that historically had a really great feeling at the bar or a really great sense of, of presence when you were there, really sort of has lost that, that feeling, uh, that loving feeling. And uh, I think you're dealing with that as well. So to wrap up those few questions you just asked a second ago, I think what we really are faced with at this point is uh, people are having a difficult time making uh, all the, the numbers and making everything sort of come together. Uh, in a profitable way. I'm hearing very few people are profitable.
3: Well, let me ask you this, staying open at a loss, are some doing that just to help their workers because they feel it's, on I know this is these are businesses, but there are some who may feel like this is the right thing to do to stay open.
5: Yes, I had that conversation actually uh, earlier today with a large restaurant group uh, outside of Chicago, and they are staying open knowing the fact that they are losing more money by being open than if they were to close. And the problem that most restaurant groups have at this point is that they don't have the working capital to maintain that. Now, there are a few restaurants, and that was another discussion we have we had recently, is that there are going to be maybe just a few restaurant groups sort of left if this continues this way, especially with the opening and closing and opening and closing, which other states and other cities have experienced. Fortunately, we've been very lucky in the sense that that hasn't occurred for us.
3: What about the larger groups, though, that you mentioned? They have the support of, of various restaurants, and they have numbers on their side as far as the number of restaurants, and they have space. And space is one thing you really do need now. I think even the smaller restaurant owners would tell you, either we can't open or because the capacity is just too limited, or they say, we've managed to open, but we really only have two tables uh, that the big guys, it's stacked against the little guys compared to the big guys.
5: Well, that's true. And I think you also have to look at something as well, that when we talk about tables, and let's say you're at 50% of the tables that you've had before, and that let's say your restaurant before it was 200 seats and now you're down to 100, you you never seat those 100 seats. You're always going to be between 60 and 75% most likely because you may come in with a friend and you take a table for four. It's now a table for two. So the numbers don't work when you start getting, especially in smaller restaurant environments, and you can't support it because you need the volume. And you need those additional tables and you need the additional check average in order to make things happen. And, and it's not happening.
3: So what do restaurant owners do at this point? If they say, you know, I'm really struggling here, maybe I can open if we get to 75% or 100% capacity, what do they do in the meantime?
5: Well, that's the thing that we are working with on our end. And what we're trying to figure out is how do you take conceptually, for instance, a, a restaurant concept, Jennifer's, and create a way that we can put that particular concept in a bag and be able to create, again, uh, what everyone else has been doing, and certainly many people have done it very well, and that is to create the concept and bring that concept home with you as well. And that's something that we'll see post-COVID as well, is the strength that many restaurants have gotten through delivery, through carry-out, and also through what is working today is aligning themselves with what we affectionately call ghost kitchens, which are off-premise kitchens that are preparing menus for restaurants that exist in different locations. So if you're able to have, most importantly, the goodwill in your concept and also signature items from your concept as well that people you know, crave, you're going to be around. If you don't have that, and those are things that have been lacking, then I'm afraid that it's you're not going to be able to survive. And probably... It's, it's going to happen sooner than would have later in that sort of context.
3: Have you seen any interesting examples of creativity through this? Uh, business owners who've tried something and it has worked.
5: I do think that there has been something interesting and I think will continue to happen. And we talked about it before is there is the grocery component that has gone along with restaurants. And and one restaurant group was doing 100,000 a week in in, in groceries. I think that's going to morph. And what that may morph into is a more specific type of, what I'll say, butcher shop, grocery, and if it's an Asian concept, um, maybe it's, it, as I mentioned, the state concept, it would have a butcher shop aligned to it. Sort of going back to the days of restaurants, or maybe we're over on Taylor Street, that had both a, a grocery component and a dining component. But now what you see is sort of the 4.0 version of that, and that's a more updated version. It's sort of taking it and shrinking it down dramatically and providing that. And I think that that's sort of something that we may see survive and see some levels of creativity with that. The reason being that we'll see that is I think people uh, want to understand their food supply, have an implied trust in certain uh, people that they uh, are frequent and will uh, continue to do so. Uh, based on the fact of the reputation of that of that particular organization.
3: And Doug, when it comes to looking at the suburbs compared to the city, as far as restaurants go and how they're faring through all of this, the suburbs had a little bit of a head start. How are they doing? Which is doing better?
5: You're asking some very interesting questions because we were discussing this again earlier today, and this was with a large steak restaurant group. Their suburban lo- locations, both locally and nationally, are doing substantially better. And the reason, obviously, is is that they're, now are individuals who have been sheltered and now have the opportunity to get out and people are getting out you know they've been tired of being sequestered and have had uh, cabin fever especially living here and you know are going and, and dining out and and that's you know outdoors but uh, that being said there's the space there's also a sense of safety uh, obviously uh the civil unrest that occurred uh, we can't ignore and that has put a certain amount of fear in, in People around the city and also in the suburbs as well. And I think that there is a sense that people need to be transported somewhere else and sort of leave their problems behind. And I think their sense is the suburbs are the solution for that. And that may be just temporary, but it certainly is something today that we're seeing a much stronger recurrence in the suburban areas than necessarily downtown.
3: And, Doug, anything, any encouraging advice or news can you give us before we wrap up?
5: Well, I think the best thing I can say is my father, who was in business for many, many years, Um, prior to myself, and I'm third generation, um, always said that the most difficult times created the most wonderful opportunities. So I think those groups that have a a strong concept, as we were talking about earlier, have brand equity, have a sense of items that people crave, are going to figure out what post-COVID is going to look like and are going to be able to be stronger are going to have new and innovative ideas. And I I look forward to what that's going to feel like. And I think we're all sort of in the process of working in our own little laboratories to develop those ideas. And I, I think there'll be exciting things to come. It's just the point is, is we're just not sure exactly when and how that will happen, but it will come.
3: Now let's talk about going to the movies. Walmart parking lots across the country are serving a new entertainment purpose during this summer of covid Paul Daguerrabedian, Senior Media Analyst for the box office tracking company Comscore in Los Angeles, joined Rob Hart on the WBBM Noon Business Hour to explain.
1: For decades, every story about a drive-in movie theater was always about this lost piece of Americana that was slowly going extinct. Uh, the world of American graffiti just disappearing in the rearview mirror. And now, lo and behold, the drive-in movie theater is where it's at. It is the technology of the future. That is uh, quite an about-face in the movie theater industry.
0: It sure is, Rob. What's old is new again as drive-ins really since the mid-March pause of the movie theater has become all the rage. People love to watch movies on the big screen and in a communal environment. And now that's taken the form of people in their cars and the safety and security of their own vehicles, but being near other people, watching a movie on that bigger-than-life screen. And now Walmart is going to, in August, have 160 of their parking lots turned into drive-ins. And in addition to that, they're going to allow people to order all their essential eating material, if you will, popcorn, soda, whatever you want, candy, online. And then you'll pick that up as you drive into the parking lot. So it's just a great way for Walmart to bring all their assets to bear, including those parking lots and their online
1: services. And this has also got to be a pretty good way for uh, the studios to to recapture some interest in maybe some classic titles uh, that they have in the vault because, you know, the new releases are slowing down, but you do see these drive-in movie theaters. They're showing Jurassic Park. They're showing Back to the Future. They're showing Ghostbusters, uh, movies that you might watch on DVD but may not have seen in the theater in decades. And it
0: shows you how different the big screen experience is because as you just said you can get all those movies you just mentioned at home on the small screen really anywhere on any device yet people are driving to these movie theaters the drive-ins and it keeps the torch burning for the movie theater experience because movie theaters will come back at some point but the fact that moviegoers around the world and this is not just a a North American phenomenon around the world drive-ins have really become the new way to see your movies with other people on the big screen. I think it's a really good thing. And hopefully when things return to quote unquote normal, the drive-in will continue to be something that people love. But I love what Walmart is doing because they're really taking advantage of all their, uh, you know, their footprint across North America and being able to keep people entertained with movies on the big screen.
1: Well, Paul, before I let you go, it's not an authentic drive-in experience unless you have uh, singing hot dogs and and cups of pop <laughs> saying, let's all go to the lobby and get some snacks. So if that gets re-recorded for 2020, they're officially back.
0: I think that's a great idea, and we all remember those great pre-movie those little commercials, whatever you want to call them, those little movies. And I know what you're talking about, the little animated characters on screen. I remember seeing uh, cartoons before a movie. And I would love to see a return to not just the, the movie theater drive-in experience, but some of those really cool pieces of content that harken back to another time and just show you how important the movie theater is, whether it's in a parking lot uh, or in a movie theater, people love going to the movies.
3: Join us next week for another edition on the WBBM In-Depth Podcast, where we take a deep dive into a story we are telling on the air. Be sure to subscribe to receive this free podcast every Wednesday. And of course, listen anytime for the stories that matter by listening to WBBM on the Radio.com app or on your radio. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jennifer Kuiper.